This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Welcome to the morning or the Friday morning break with John Gibbs on Teachers Talk Radio. If you're joining me from the classroom or you're joining me from the school or you're joining from home, welcome as we explore some of the big ideas in education in what I call thought for the weekend or thinking about education or the big think with John Gibbs. Welcome. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Well, you're very welcome, uh, and I hope you're listening. If you are listening live, that would surprise me, actually. But you might be in school, you're doing a training day, or you're maybe you're teaching this week already. You've started teaching, or it is the morning break. You're sitting in your classroom. You're very welcome to join and to join in as well. You can uh, uh, join in by connecting through the Podbean app, and uh, I'll see you there and connect. You can send messages. So we might have a bit of interaction. Otherwise, you're with me for the next hour. John Gibbs, that's my first live broadcast quite an interesting experience i've done a fair amount of um podcasting in the past and uh, this is really different so i've got to stop myself wanting to pause and think oh, i think i'll try that again instead i'll uh, just keep on talking and uh, reacting to what you, what people say i've called this show uh, the big think and i'm aiming to bring together guests in the future i've got guests in the next three pod uh, three podcasts there you go three radio uh, broadcasts lined up and hopefully they will join us they will join us i think and i'll tell you more about the the guests later i'll tell you a little bit about me and uh, why i've called it the big thing well it's not pretentious obviously the big thing i was going to call it uh, the meaning of everything but i thought that's a bit broad the big thing instead is well when you're a teacher and i certainly i was i've been teaching i no, i was teaching i'm retired now um, when I was a teacher, I found that there was, there was the immediacy of the day. There was getting things done. There was always a deadline coming up. There was always the marking to be done, the lesson to be done, the preparing for things and so on. And sometimes it was just difficult to take yourself away from the whiteboard, take yourself away from the marking, take yourself away from the immediate pressures of getting through the day and instead think about what education is for. Uh, oh, I've got a message there. I can be heard loud and clear. That's always a relief because I, I could be talking into nothing, couldn't I? Actually, no one could hear me. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, there's at least one person listening to me out there somewhere at the moment, which is encouraging, to be fair, which is encouraging. So when you want to think about, I, th I think I'll contend that what I want to do in this fortnightly show is to think about what schools are for and it's a big broad question and it's going to a lot of things going to fall under the heading of what schools are for uh, wh why we have exams uh, why schools are organized the way they are and in today's focus of the show I want to have a look at the politicization of education um, and why schools have become a focus of such political contestation and argument and debate uh, and I'm going to say that's more than most other areas in the public sector so I think uh, well, I think we've got quite a lot to get through in the next hour or so, uh, plus a bit of news uh, and anyone phoning in. Now, first of all, uh, about me. Yes, my favourite topic <laughs> about me. 
Uh, I I'm now retired, and uh, I recommend that, by the way. Definitely get your pension sorted out. Make sure you've got your AVCs bolted on. Get those missing years paid up, and uh, because you can look forward to retirement. I think, I think I'd say that's a very encouraging thought for you this morning. If you, as you're working on the on the whiteboard, or you're stapling things to the wall, or you've just you're munching into the chocolate muffin at break time, uh, and you're thinking to yourself, "Well, what's it all for?" Well, it's with his retirement at the end. A world of garden centres and Velcro shoes and elasticated trousers. It's marvellous. So I love being retired. I love teaching, actually. And I taught for uh, 38 years or so across a broad spectrum of schools in the United States, uh, in this country, um, uh, mainly at one school. And I'll talk about they, 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 it will crop up my main school that I taught at over the years. And it will might crop up today in a few anecdotes and reflections on the past. Anyway, uh, I taught in America, I taught in uh, uh, further education, sixth form that is, and I taught in secondary education, years eights, nines, tens, etc, etc. And uh, uh, what else can I say about myself? Other than um, now I'm doing some podcasting and a bit of broadcasting here and doing all the things I wished I'd done when I didn't have time to do them on those in those years of teaching. So uh, I will be I will be drawing on that that experience. I will be oh if you hear any crashing and banging by the way and sort of loud clanging noises, uh, there's a church next to my house. That's a very bucolic image, isn't it? I'm in the garden shed, the garden shed, the place where retired men get sent to calm down. I'm in the I'm in the garden shed, and next to me there's a church where they're changing the bells. I went up there yesterday. This is a complete digression. I went to the church and they had all the bells laid out on the floor of the church. Massive, great bells. I mean, <laughs> that's very poetic, isn't it? Massive. There were massive, great bells, I said. Those are massive bells. Anyway, there were massive, great bells. They were, they'd been recast in 1910 and they'd been, um, and some of them had, some of them dated back to the 1600s. And one of the guys who was showing me their, their, their repair and they're, they're taking them down, they're going to put them back before September and add a couple more, that his father had um, he had put his name on one of the bells and he was going to add his name to it. What an oddly beautiful continuity of time that is. And as I say, a beautifully bucolic scene. I'm next to the church. I could have said I'm next to the I'm next to the multi-storey car park on the other side. I'm not actually. I'm out in the lovely Northamptonshire countryside in next to a church in my shed. So if you do hear clanging and banging and such, uh, then that's the bells being taken down next door. And uh, hopefully they won't start playing them. They couldn't play them, could they? Because they're taking them down. We'll give them a final clang, I suppose. My contention, and uh, you can disagree with this. Hopefully you will. Phone in. By all message, message me and tell me that you... Um, was there a message there? No, no, not. Uh, if you disagree with this, I, my contention is that schools are places uh, that have become more politicized. Um, I'm going to do a quick anecdote now. I've just thought of something. The, one of the reasons I think, one of the lessons I learned from teaching was I did a year's teaching in the United States. It was an exchange program. I recommend it. And I taught in a little school in Oregon. And one of the things that I learned, all sorts of things that year, it was a very intense kind of year. And... Um, while I was there, I noticed lots of things I noticed. But one of the things I noticed was in the staff meetings, there's always very good coffee and plenty of uh, things to eat, like sort of muffins and things. Uh, much better coffee than I've ever received at any staff meeting in this country, got to say. That wasn't the main observation, though. I noticed at staff meetings, people were very 
what they call it the American can do. They talked about um, things that needed doing that day. I mean, numbers of books, uh, how the library was ordering something. Have you got enough paper for your classroom? Uh, have you got enough board markers? I mean, those things crop up at British staff meetings as well. But as time went by, I realized that almost all conversations at British staff meeting, meetings, at American staff meetings, sorry, were concerned with the sort of quotidian, the practical nature of getting through the day and working. And what they didn't discuss was pedagogy. There was never any kind of sharing of, well, I just, I tried a new technique with my students this time. And whereas the British teachers, in my experience, for years now have been encouraged to share their pedagogy, reflect on your practice, share your pedagogy with others. Um, and no doubt today, someone has been given the unenviable task of delivering, or this week, delivering uh, some uh, internal training. And there was no sense at all in the United States school that teachers required training. They required pens, they required boards, and they required a group of students sitting at little desks, little, little chairs with fold-in desks, and off they went. They knew exactly what they had to do. In this country, on the other hand, teachers are in a permanent sort of Maoist revolution of training. You need to be trained constantly. You teach for 10 years, one year, five years, you just started, you've been doing it every year. No, no, you definitely need training. When did it get like this? When did we become, when did we become so uncertain about what schools were for. My observation, and you can, you can disagree with this, please disagree with anything I say, and I sometimes disagree with myself, and I will out loud. My contention is that unlike other sectors in the public, other public service sectors, the education has become more politicized. Now, now ever since the 1980s, and the arrival, as it were, in, in the polit dominant political ideology of this country and across much of the Western world in the post-Cold War era, I told you we're getting big, we're, getting, we're going large now, was neoliberalism. And neoliberalism says that schools should be marketized. And markets and competition became the, men, the means by which you judged schools, you judged hospitals, you judged doctor surgeries, you judged how you organized the civil service. It pervaded every aspect. And in that sense, the neoliberalist revolution became the neoliberalist turn. I don't know if it was a revolution, the neoliberalist turn, the dominant ideology of neoliberalism, in, 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 I won't say infects, that's a bit heavy really, um, changes all of, the, all of the public sector areas. So if you're a civil servant or if you're a, uh, a doctor's surgery and, you're, and you realize that the internal market became the mechanism by which you produce better, better uh, hospitals, doctors, civil servants, local governments, you're, you're setting targets, you're judging outputs, and you're acting like you are Marks and Spencer's selling underpants. However, my contention is schools, something else happened, and it happened probably, it started a long time before then, we could go way back in time and look at the politicization of teaching, because, because unlike all the other segments of the public service, other public service areas, schools are building the future. They're like, they're like the Roman god Janus. They're looking into the future and they're looking into the past. They're trying to inculcate students with the, with the values we think are important. Uh, and we're also, and that knowledge we think they wish to pass on from one generation to the next. And also they're trying to look ahead to prepare them for a world we can hardly 
imagine, but give them the skills to operate in the future. And this, this is a great tension within schools now, backward looking, forward looking at the same time. So I think in that sense, ever since the modern age, I mean, you can look back at John Locke or you can look at Rousseau and you can arguments about how people learn and how people discover things and so on, and realize that with practical sense, this had a lot to do with simply that how do we deal with the unwashed working classes and how do we maintain order and not allow ourselves to fall into a sort of Hobbesian nightmare. Well, in the 20th century, though, I think it intensifies. It intensifies even more. And uh, we have, unlike other public services, teachers have at their shoulder the entire British society. Almost everyone thinks they can be a teacher. Almost everyone has a view on teachers. If I say to somebody, uh, in the street, you know, in the street, I say something in the street, I'm not going to go up to someone and say something in the street about teaching. If I say to someone um, that uh, this morning, I, you know, my classroom, I stand for no, I stand for no nonsense. It's uh, oh, you can hear a pin drop. And if a student steps out of line, I'm uh, very severe with them. You'll hear people think that's good. And you'll hear people think that's not so good. But they'll think it in terms probably of a spectrum of progressive education through to a progressive traditional education, which will probably align with something political. It'll align with a left-right view of the world in which we live. I could do the same about school uniforms. I could talk about how I, how I, uh, I, today I talked for nearly an hour to my students, the year nines they were. <laughs> that would be, that would be amazing. I talked to my year nines for an hour and um, gave them a good lecture on something or other. Again, someone will take a view on that. They will think, yes, delivery of information. So delivery of information became associated with a particular political view of what schools should be doing. If I said, uh, well, we all went off to the woods and we explored a bit and we brought things back to the classroom, we discussed them, we went into a role and played a, played a little game and a piece of drama. Well, someone else would listen to that and say, well, that's again, it's a view of the kind of young people we're trying to build. Schools then became political in a sense that no other bit of our society became political. They became the, you can debate school, young people today, almost everything that seems to go wrong in society, every, every, whether it's the economy go wrong, there's a lot going wrong at the moment. Things that go wrong in society can be dealt with, it is supposed, by schools. Of course they can. If only teachers would teach students not to do that, or if only teachers would teach students to do that. And I know if you're listening, again, if you're um, having, a, if you're stapling things to the wall or you're, uh, in your break time or you're listening to this as a podcast you may say well this is the blooming obvious you know teachers live in this uh my, under the microscope of society well how did we uh, get here how did we get here indeed Well, I, I'm going to I'm going to go now and uh, ask you uh, go a little imaginary imagine an imaginary situation. It's <laughs> an imaginary situation. Uh, imagine this is like a you are going to travel backwards in time, and you're going to do it in Doctor Who's TARDIS, and you fly back to the eighteen. Let's go for the eighteen sixties, seventies, eighties, sometime in the latter half of the nineteenth century. Good old Victorian Britain. Yes, and you uh, you exit the TARDIS and you ask a passerby, which is very surprising, you ask a passerby to come in and would they like to come with you back to the future, as it were, not in a DeLorean, in a TARDIS, and see what's happened to the world. And they uh, 
course, they step in the TARDIS and they are a bit amazed. It's bigger in the inside. It's bigger on the inside than the outside. Yes, and you have to explain that's all to do with time and space and ratios and, and overlapping dimensions. And they go, oh, fair enough. Yes, I can see that now. That's, that's why it's big on the inside and the outside. Uh, shall we go? And off you do. You, you fly off to the dissolve and then undissolve in 2022. And the Victorian personage, gentleman or lady, uh, I, I would I would suggest is fairly confused. They're suffering full on culture shock and uh, future shock. And uh, there are things flying in the sky and uh, people, people are dressed so differently. And uh, how's, how's that even, how's it even, well, how can you tell the difference between men and women? That men, that man looks like a woman, that woman looks like a man, so on. And uh, you can't tell the difference between the rich and the poor. These, where's the top hats and the so on to indicate that people have wealth? You say, well, actually, uh, you can tell the difference. It's just a lot more subtle these days. And the differences between rich and poor are probably larger. But never mind about that. We'll explain the subtleties of the modern age right now. But they, they, as they become confused and you're worried that our um, uh, time traveler is becoming in danger of uh, a breakdown, you say, I better, better calm him down by taking him somewhere that he will recognize, he or she will recognize. And you take them, I would suggest, to a school. Yes, take them to a school. They would recognize where they are. They would be surprised by some of the technology. If you took them into the computer labs, they wouldn't know what was going on. Uh, the whiteboard, if it was a, if it was a um, smart whiteboard, they'd be surprised by. But there would be students. In classes, they would recognize as such. There'd be a teacher delivering in a means that they understood as teaching. There'd be a day segmented into lessons. They'd be interrupted by bells. The students would be wearing uniforms. I'm in a school. Some things have hardly, well, they've hardly changed, but some things are recognizably as Victorian uh, today as they would have been to a Victorian. And if you really want to calm the guy, lady, down, take them to an exam room. Oh, yes, take them to an exam room. There they are, the squeaky tables, the kids sitting in serried rows, the wobbly desk, and the, uh, that, uh, you know, that, that unignorable silence that is uh, full and heavy with tension and a good dose of fear. And they'd say, ah, yes, we're still putting our students through that, are we? We're still testing them. And I see, of course, says the Victorian, that I see the essay is still the backbone of, 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 of producing knowledge. Yes, the essay, the introduction, the two-part debate, and the conclusion is, of course, your, uh, your, your means of testing an awful lot of things. The 300, 1500-word essay developed in the 19th century to uh, inculcate the ability of civil servants and lawyers to look at two thirds of an argument is still used by modern students who are going to go out into society to prove that they understand Shakespeare or they understand poetry or they understand um, history in short, balanced essays. It's hardly changed at all. My goodness. Well, I think uh, there's a paradox, and I won't uh, be the first person. I don't claim anything, by the way, I say is particularly original, but I won't be the first person to have observed, to have observed that while schools are backward looking and forward looking, they are both conservative, deeply conservative, and at the same time, the intensity 
with which we think they need fixing has grown. So at the same time, you have the reintroduction of uniforms, the reintroduction of features that a Victorian would recognize in as a mechanism to answer increasingly urgent problems of a whole new age that a Victorian wouldn't have the first idea about. So there we are, fear. Yes, that great, that great, <laughs> that great gift of the world to British education, public schools. Was it George Orwell said something like, um, there was no deprivation he could have experienced when he was down and out in Paris and London living on the streets. No deprivation so hard as being as life in an English public school. Oh, by the way, that, oh, anecdote, anecdote coming. This is this is. Uh, I think I, I think it is germane. Germane to the subject we're talking about today, but I'll uh, I'll um, I'll give it a go. Back back in time, back in, I've got oh I've got back in time music now. Hold on, here we go. Look, uh, I can't do it. No, oh. oh, first technical flummery of the of the of the morning. I've put the wrong not. I wanted some back in time music. I haven't got it. I can't find it. Anyway. When I before I was married, um, and uh, this was this was a long time ago, and uh, just before I was married, but uh, the uh, my wife, who was my, my future wife, uh, was working in a school not in North London, or it's actually fact not so north of London that actually it's that bit of London that gets all leafy. And I was not yet a teacher. This was we're talking now the early nineteen eighties, uh, wedding anniversary, forty years coming up next year. <laughs> oh, marvelous anyway so i was waiting i was going to meet her after work she was working as a school administrator in uh in an american international school in north london way up north of london in leafy bushy bushy which is bushy by name bushy by nature leafy bushy and uh i'd i'd finished my work which was all sorts of odds and ends at the time and uh, was meeting her from work. So I traveled to Bushy, to the school where she was teaching in order to meet her from work, but she was delayed. There was a thing she had to do. There was administrative doodads to be done. And I uh, had, to, had to wander around the school on my own, which was rather nice because the school had was now used by an American school. And they were teaching in the American style with um, grades and uh, a continuous assessment and um, graduation and such like. So it was an American style school using the buildings that had once been a minor English public school. And uh, uh, it was beautiful. It really was. It was a bucolic scene. It was playing fields and I wandered around the playing fields. There were tree playing fields fringed with lime trees and chestnuts and the sunlight was cutting uh, beautiful shafts of light across the... I imagine the masters calling the boys in and bells ringing and the crack of <laughs> crack of leather on willow, no cliche I can't use here, crack, the crack of willow, leather on willow, and it was very beautiful. And there was that, and it was built in that um, English public school style stroke Hogwarts of uh, neo-Gothic and a little bit of arts and crafts. And it was really nice. And I found the chapel and I thought I'll wander into the chapel. I'm the sort of wanderer into of things like chapels and churches. I always, I always do that, go and have a look around. And uh, there it was, little chapel. I imagine stern, stern vicars delivering, telling the boys to avoid um, all sorts of behaviours because uh, they'll make them go blind, etc. And I 
instead, uh, they, I walked, walked around the church and there was that, you know, there was the, it was a familiar church with little, little books and sprawlings of flowers cut for Sunday and that sort of thing. And on the wall, brass plaques. I shall read the brass plaque. You know, there was chaps killed in the First World War, inevitably in the Second World War. And there was a small brass plaque on the wall. And it said, uh, in memory of boys killed on the playing field. I thought, what? I thought, Jesus and Mary, boys killed on the, what were they playing? Were they playing like rollerball? I mean, was James Caan going to come hurtling around the corner on roller skates with spiked gloves? It was Hunger Games, oh my God. Um, presumably they were playing uh, rugby and cricket. I mean, I mean, rugby and cricket, I mean, bruised noses, chipped teeth, sprained ankles, not death. And there was a, the list was not small. There were several boys killed on the playing field. And uh, the expression killed on the playing field, or died, sorry, it's died, not killed, killed, that would have been very bad, wouldn't it? And stabbed on the playing field. They were di died on the playing field. And I thought, okay, so, you know, the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. There was that particular contribution. And it made me think then, uh, I mean, I, I could, but I won't. So can schools, and it did make me think that schools are, and for me, have always been places that are contested. And I don't think in all of my teaching career that I ever thought that I was entirely satisfied with the place I was in and indeed what we were doing. And I would like to explore with you, uh, is it time for the news? Shall I do the news? I'll it's a good point actually. I'll explore with you in the second half. We're not quite halfway through, but I'll explore with you in the second half of this show why some of the theoretical ways in which schools are contested and some of the history of that contestation. And finally, I'll end up with looking at why, why right now, right now in, in our political world, there is a, there's almost the most obsessive focus on schools. So this is going to test even more, test my abilities here with the, with the doodad, if I can find the news. Should we try take a break for the news? Yes. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I continue with my series on home connection and getting the best performance. The question today is wired or wireless connection, which is best? Can you actually connect via a wire? Some devices don't have an Ethernet or compatible port to have a wired connection. Being hardwired allows a more stable connection. You're not relying on high frequency waves to transmit your data, and waves are susceptible to interference in the shape of distance from the transmitter receiver, in human language, your hub. Then there are walls, furniture, other devices, basically anything that gets in the way. So the first tip is, if possible, 
use a wired connection. At home though this is easier said than done, you need to be reasonably close to your home hub as this is where the ports are and sometimes that's not a great place to work. If you are after a wired connection away from your hub then take a look at using power line adapters. These are two plugs that use your existing home electric wiring to create a virtual wired connection to anywhere in the building that has a plug socket. They are relatively cheap and some can also be used as wireless extenders allowing you to create a better Wi-Fi coverage in dark spots in your home. At around 30 to 50 pounds it's a relatively cheap and aesthetically pleasing option compared to running cables around your home. Meshing is the next solution to improve coverage. More recently homes have been adopting the mesh system. Meshing is linking wireless access points together to extend their range. All have the same sign-in so you can seamlessly move from one to the other with uninterrupted connection. Starting at around £80, it's a more expensive option but if you only have devices that use Wi-Fi, this might be the answer for you. With most home networks, after bandwidth availability, interference is your next enemy. Always try to place your home hub in the most central place if the telephone sockets allow, otherwise consider power line adapters or meshing. Most modern internet providers give you options to buy these devices from them. This will guarantee it works for your network, but be aware this will come at a higher price tag. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. Why not get in touch at CT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is Teachers Talk Radio News GCSE Special. With many young people celebrating their GCSE results on Thursday the 25th of August, a range of both local and national media outlets have carried stories of success. Schools Week have provided a clear analysis of some of the trends as pupils received grades via examinations for the first time since 2019. The main headline figures have dropped from those achieved in 2021 when pupils' grades were awarded based on teacher assessment, but many were up when compared to 2019 figures. The main headlines for pupils in England include the grade 5 or above pass rate at 60.3%, which is up from 53.5% in 2019, with grade 4s improving from 69.9% to 75.3%. The number of pupils achieving top grade 9s sits at 6.8%, but is much higher than the 4.7% in 2019. In terms of subjects, English has seen a bigger drop in top grades than maths, on 2021 levels, although both subjects still outperform 2019 grades. There were also nearly three times more straight nines since the last exam, with 2,193 students achieving all grades 837 in 2019. Over two thirds of these students were girls, sparking some additional reporting on the gender gap in terms of attainment. 13 students in England achieved grade nines in 12 or more GCSEs. 
One of the biggest stories, however, has been the attainment gap between North and South. In the northeast of England, the proportion of pupils achieving top grades of sevens or above was 22.4% compared to 32.6% in London. Whilst in the West Midlands, a fifth of students achieved top grades compared with one third of London students, according to the website Birmingham World. This data has prompted a number of stories focusing on school funding and what some view as the disproportionate effects of the pandemic on some areas. The director of Schools North East, Chris Saraga, called for an urgent recovery plan which recognised the different needs of different areas, whilst also highlighting the work done by the region's students and teachers in what he called unprecedented circumstances. Meanwhile, Ofqual Chief Joe Saxton, speaking to the TES magazine, has commented on the attempt to return to normal assessment. In the article, she notes that the advanced information issued by exam boards to help students sitting this summer's exams may not have been helpful in practice. Speaking to school leaders at the Confederation of School Trusts conference, she stated that it gave pupils just one other thing to think about. Dr Saxton also explored how she expects aspects such as grading scales to evolve in the future. The core points of the speech included addressing disadvantage, described as a key part of her job, with examples of maths and MFL questions being accessible to all. She also described the summer 2022 exam grading as one of the most generous in history, as Ofqual did not want to return to 2019 grading levels in one fell swoop. Dr Saxton acknowledged that exams would be changing over the coming years, highlighting that she believes it is a case of when, not if, we move towards online assessment, but added that reform must not throw out babies with bathwater and that handwriting is here to stay. And finally, exam board AQA continues to face industrial action from employees who are part of the union Unison. The strikes are currently in their fourth period of industrial action as a dispute over pay and threats of fire and rehire continue, according to union representatives. The action coincides with many of those who marked exams for the board this year taking to social media to complain of delayed and missing payments and some claims of pupils not receiving marks at all. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio GCSE News Special with Joe Fox. Oh, that's me. Welcome back to uh, Teachers Talk Radio and John Gibbs on the Friday morning break. There you have it. The exam boards were generous. Yeah, okay, okay, generous. Uh, Does generosity play a part in marking exams? Well, apparently it does. I thought they were objective uh, assessments of people's ability. Never mind. They were generous this year and they don't want to throw any babies out with the bathwater. That is excellent. And of course, we had before that the two minute tech. Get your tech sorted out, <laughs> especially before you stand up or it can cause your eyes to water. Anyway, where was I? Ah, yes, I'm getting back to the view of education schools as contested. But actually, the news there shows that, really, doesn't it? They are contested places. They have to justify themselves. They have to be adjusted. We are going to argue about those exam results. And in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have Dennis Sherwood as a guest. And Dennis Sherwood, who's the author of Missing the Mark, and his contention is that there's an awful lot of wrong grades and uh, A-levels and GCSEs are marked very, very badly but in a way that we have come to culturally accept. Well, that's in the future. Schools are places of contestation. How did it happen? Well, before I get to how did it happen, let's look at one of those contested spaces. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier. This is the spectrum. This is the kind of pendulum that swings between progressive education and traditional education. 
And my teaching career is almost a model, especially the school I taught at, schools I taught at, uh, of, of that pendulum and it, the way it swung during my teaching career. The movement between progressive uh, education, what do we mean by progressive education? We mean the focus on schools as places of uh, where students explore, where there's the emphasis on experience, it's the emphasis on developing personal skills and giving students agency over their own learning. And traditional education, which we talk about with, with delivery is important, assessment and outcomes, and uh, minimizing uh, personal student agency is effectively what's good for them. <laughs> I don't want to show any, I don't want to show a bias there, never mind. Uh, so the progression, the progressive versus traditional uh, spectrum of education is a bit like uh, in economics, of, I don't know if you've heard of the hemline, the hemline index, the hemline index is that you can predict, this is nothing to do with education, by the way, I just like it. This is, um, the hemline index is you can tell whether an economy is on the up, i.e. things are getting better or at least people feel they're getting better or the economy is on the way down and people are very nervous and there's insecurity by the length of skirts that ladies are wearing in other words lengths of skirt above the knee optimism swinging 60s it's the future go places the you know a challenge challenge the world you live in and uh, skirts below the knee hunker down security safety tradition for the hemline index there's another version of this which is something like the hat the haircut index which is it goes pretty much the same way floppy curly hair in men is optimism and short uh, shaved heads is conservatism and it is security so that goes you know goes which way which way it goes uh, the spectrum between progressive education and traditional education may reflect that as well, does it? I think it does. I would say it does. I think there's a sense of insecurity tends to move education towards tradition. People want students to be disciplined. They worry. They worry about the world. They, they worry. They want them. They want to be inculcated with the traditions of the past so that the future can be a secure and place that we recognise. And I think that progressive education is when we are more secure in our own skins about the kind of world we think we could live in and let the, let young people uh, explore even if they even if they become uh, things we don't want them necessarily to become backward looking places there's the tension between uh, emancipation and domination and you're going to find this throughout history you know at its most extreme uh, schools on education is used to re-educate soon you hear a country saying they're going to re-educate people you know that basically means torture them uh, re-educate people like the poor old Uyghurs in China um, and re-education, indoctrination, control. And you say, well, that plays no part in anything we do in education. Uh, well, uh, there's a view, of course, and uh, hopefully you'll, 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 you'll uh, have views on this. There's a view that, of course, education is about indoctrination. Uh, if we don't use the word indoctrination, well, let's talk about uh, socialization. Then it's a sort of soft indoctrin indoctrination. Students have to learn how to operate in society, uh, and it's the society they have. It's retrospective, the society that they are currently living in. At the other end of the spectrum, if domination is one end of the spectrum, then emancipation. Students need to be shaken up, and uh, they need to be creative, and they need to be questioning, and they need to be this kind of the was it the, uh, the Frankfurt School guys used to call it the antagonistic force. So the antagonistic force of education should be unleashed in the classroom. You should you should shake them up a bit, like hopefully this show will do over the coming weeks. I'm thinking I'm thinking not of providing answers to anything in particular. 
but hopefully what we'll do is a creative confusion. I used to say to my students when I taught them at the end of this lesson, if you're confused and you haven't understood what it was about, that's good. That's creative. Take that confusion and run with it. <laughs> I, I did actually say that. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so, and, and, and of course, there's that the, behind that control and emancipation idea you know the, of education there's a view of childhood and the view of childhood uh tends to again reflect security and insecurity in society so children as little beasts who need to be they'll, they'll run around putting pig pigs heads on sticks and such like you know sort of lord of the flies anarchy if you give them half a chance and children as little elf-like figures who are going to inhabit the forest and they only need to be left to play tends to be associated with a greater sense of security of the world we, we, world we live in. Uh, and, and that underpins, in a way, the spectrum of the way schools st are steered through the uh, debate about what schools should be doing. Um, the philosopher, the philosopher, I've got a philosopher here. Yeah, philosopher John White uh, wrote in 2007 that what are schools for? He wrote a book, he wrote an article called What Are Schools For and Why? What are schools for and why? See, I, I not only I'm not the only one who's going to be ambitious in their thinking. What are schools for and why? 2007. Basically, the conclusion was they're there to produce human happiness and well-being. Delightful. And you might well be listening to that and think, well, obviously, that is the blooming obvious. And a lot of a lot of observations about school. You know, schools should give students skills for the that they that are going to require in the future. Well, duh, yes. Schools should produce happy and well-adjusted students. Well, yeah, well, obviously. It's almost impossible to say something that schools should be doing. A paradox. We, we tend to know what schools should be like. Happy and creative places that produce skills that people are going to require in the future and, student, and, and young people and citizens of the future who are going to be full of the values that we want. We're going to disagree, though, over those values and we're going to disagree how to do it. We're largely not going to disagree about education and what it should be trying to achieve. Uh, oh yeah, well, but well, uh, yeah, uh, well, yeah. yeah. So uh, the, the the other spectrum tends to shift between those models and of control and those models and those debates between um, what should what should be taught and, and that that oh yeah yeah the, the debate tends to fall between what should be taught and and how it should be taught. So for instance. Um, what should be taught? Uh, you can go back to the 19th century and find the Chartists. And, and, you know, we know the Chartists argued for things like annual parliaments and votes for men, uh, votes for universal suffrage for all men. But the Chartists always also, a Chartist, we're talking the 1840s, the Chartists in the 1840s were arguing that working men need, to quote the Chartist Charter, really useful knowledge, really useful knowledge. And what they meant was not a lot of scripture. What is really useful knowledge will almost be continually reinvented by the times you live in. Uh, there is a rather un a cynical view that schools tend to always lag behind what they think really useful knowledge is, not only in management practices, for instance. It's, you can almost, there's a, I think it's like, it's not the Peter principle, but it's something like that, that if a school is adopting a particular management practice, that probably means that management practice is now being unadopted by large corporations out there in the world. So for instance, things like um, performance-related pay arrives in schools just about the time most big corporations are rejecting that as unhelpful and probably required by society a, a few years ago. 
very well. You know, I, I'm sympathetic with that. Um, we, we can't. We can, we only, if only we could travel into the future and say, "Oh, right, okay, that is what we should have been preparing students for." Yes, really useful knowledge. If I, yes, I love that that phrase. Let's give them really useful knowledge. Well, where did it all? Where did it go? So I'm going to now do the quick history of where we got where we've got. Well, when I first started teaching, I not when I first started teaching, I first started teaching in big, rather fusty old sixth form colleges and further education and such like, and delivering A levels. But for some reason that defies uh, my understanding <laughs> right now, even though I was loving, loving and enjoying teaching, I thought I think I'll change, and I went off to a massively large comprehensive school and started teaching not sixth formers, but yeah, I carried on teaching sixth formers. I've taught sixth formers my entire career. And adults, I've taught adults in that. Oh, I love, I love teaching adults in adult education. Anyone's an adult education tutor. It's so wonderfully different, uh, and it has its own challenges. Obviously, uh, people want to bring cake in, for instance, into the classes and eat cake during your class, or give it. You know, and you can't say no to cake, can you? In a lesson. So I taught adult classes. I was an examiner for a number of years uh, for Edexcel and others, and other exam boards. Some of those exam boards no longer exist. Uh, which is going to be so interesting when we talk about whether a school should use exams, which I, you know, I'm going to go there. And um, and while, while I was teaching, I, went, I left sixth form colleges, the safe harbour, the unchoppy waters of the sixth form college, and headed off to a big comprehensive school where I taught year eights, year nines, year tens, year elevens. But it was a progressive school. And what attracted me to this place is they were trying to reinvent what schools were. And it was in the early, now in the early 1990s, and it was a bit like arriving in Eastern Europe just before the fall of um, Twilight Sense, that progressive education was being was being assailed. And we were one of the last bastions. Teachers didn't teachers were called by their first names. I remember turning up on my first day at work and uh, wearing my wearing my suit, wearing my, my tweed, my, my teacherly tweed jacket and tie. And uh, afterwards, the a colleague, a senior teacher said, well, John, students don't like that here. They don't really like that sort of thing. It creates a barrier between you and the students. Could you please come to work tomorrow in jeans and a T-shirt? Yeah, that was that was progressive education in the early 1990s in a progressive school. Uh, another thing I taught, I had year nines all day and I had year tens all day and half days. All the lessons, were, there were no lessons. It was full days. And when you're teaching year nines all day, you, you have a lot of them doing all sorts of activities, 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 activities. Formal didactic teaching was not to be found. Drama, play, exploration was to be found. And one of the wonderful courses that I taught there to my year, it was, yeah, it was year nine, was the first, it might have been year 10, the First World War. And the First World Wars are brilliantly integrated and all the subjects were integrated. I didn't teach English and history and sociology and geography. I taught them all. And it was called a subject called shared time. And you shared the time with the students in, and, and you could integrate things together. So you, teaching the First World War made perfect sense to teach the literature side by side, the war poets, the letters of people from the front. And um, so well, this is a great course. And yeah, and we'd, we were about eight weeks into it and we'd done drama. We'd pushed the table 
we'd had a great time and really enjoying studying the First World War. And uh, they had to, obviously had to do writing. And one of the easiest tasks was to set them to write letters, which uh, obviously had to be stained with tea bags. That is, as all children will tell you, any document that is in the past has been stained by tea bags because all old documents have been immersed in tea for some reason that only the past knows. And I'd get these letters in and the, the, the students would say, I'd read them and they're very good. You know, we've got, we've got empathy. Empathy was the thing. Find the lived experience of being in the trenches. And they would say things like, uh, well, <laughs> dear Flory, I'm at the front and there's, a, there's an awful lot of rats and mud and such and the mud gets everywhere and I mean everywhere. And uh, there's the trench foot, which is a right to audible pain. Uh, but in the, I blame that Hitler. I was going to blame that Hitler. Oh dear. Read the next one. Albert, so pleased to hear you. And I'm sure the mud's getting everywhere. And I mean everywhere. And there's the trench foot and such and the rats. And, well, certainly empathy nicely. I blame the Nazis. Thank good you're holding them back. Whoa, stop. I realized that my class had not the faintest idea that there were not quite a number of them completely confusing the First World War and the Second World War. And they had no idea of how or why the war was actually taking place. The geopolitics, the history and its causes was absent from the course. But they were having a great time. Now, defenders of that, that would say, of course, if they want to learn the facts, they can learn it later themselves. Your job, Mr. Gibbs or John, <laughs> your job is to give them a sense of the pity of war. That would be great. Students left school with a pity. That was the 1990s. And back then, uh, the prevailing thoughts of the 60s were still around. Uh, the Ivan Illich abandonment of schools entirely, the, the, the de-schoolers. And we'd be talking to an absolutely brilliant teacher, a guy called Roy Nevitt, in my next program. No, the program after next. And Roy Nevitt's going to tell us about some of the experiments he carried out in drama and theatre and theatre and education as ways of promoting knowledge and an alternative to an alternative to the structures of school. Back then, though, the the things that you understood were came from the ideas of people like uh, Bourdieu and the um, uh, the 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 hidden curriculum. And I don't know if you when you first came across the hidden curriculum and when you explain it to students. And of course, they say, well, yes, absolutely. Schools must be places of sociological of, of sorry of socialization. Obviously, they must. But do, do you agree that schools are also places of indoctrination? They are teaching people to be good workers. And so the tide that was flowing in progressive education at the time was to disrupt that view and create happy, creative, if very poorly informed students. <laughs> um, in the 1980s, that all changed. There was that, there was that shift, you know, that the, the post the post-structuralists went off down the Foucauldian direction of not believing that uh, you know everything was controlled, everything was power, and information was power and control, and there was very little you could do about it. The neoliberals arrive on the scene and they're arguing that um, there's a return to delivery. We must deliver. And how can you measure? How can you measure the delivery? of education. You can only measure the delivery of education was setting schools up to compete against each other. And you can easily measure who, which, which kids go to which school to create a marketplace and then create targets and then get teachers comparing each other and so on and, and, and so on. On it goes. Um, and there are league tables and there are targets and there are performance targets. And welcome to the world that we are familiar with.
And that is, in essence, was the process which happened to the school I taught at. Uh, it was steadily over the years, bit by bit, the progressive bits were chipped away at. I mean, the, the, the fences went around the school for probably very sensible reasons. Um, the uh, uniforms were introduced. Well, uniforms. Uh, I think our Victorian visitor to the modern age will very much wonder why school uniforms made a return. I can remember when I was at school, and I'm going down memory lane again, um, Dr. Challen, the head teacher of my school, announcing to the school, to great applause, I might add, very unusual for the teacher to get spontaneous applause, and he said that after consultation with the students and parents, the school uniform will go. This was circa 1973 or two. 1973 it probably was. Yeah, was it? Yeah, 19... No, maybe in 1972. In 1972, the school uniform at our school will go. Next year, you students, he said, will have to learn how to dress responsibly for a place of work, as you will in the rest of your lives. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the school uniform was infantilizing and was controlling. And we didn't want that anymore. We want to, we need to be, be, you want, give you greater agency. That was in 1972. We haven't yet got the new prime minister, but the chancellor, when he was briefly the education secretary, Nadim Zahawi, produces a white paper. And the white paper is called, and I'll maybe leave you with this, the white paper 2022 from the Department of Education is called Opportunity for All. Strong schools with great teachers for every child. There you go. That's what's needed. Because we haven't had that, have we? We haven't had great schools or strong schools. It's a strong school. Strong schools with great teachers. <laughs> I don't know if you want to unpack that. A lot of the white paper then goes on to say some pretty straightforward things. Um, a lot, lot more trusts, a lot more um, academies. Those are the answer to strong schools and great teachers. So there you go. As we approach the end of my hour, kids to read and write properly. And uh, next, my next guest in two weeks time will be Lee Elliott Major OBE, uh, the first professor of uh, social equality, social, uh, not social equality, social mobility, the first professor of social mobility in this country. And he's going to talk about some studies recently that suggest that social mobility has got a bit of a way to go, let's say, and some really hair-raising stuff that we wish was not true. I desperately wish this wasn't true, that, that many students, many young people, many pupils enter school aged five, and you can predict exactly how they'll leave school and with what qualifications at year 11. And that's in 2022. And it's a piece of research that it's uh, it's almost Calvinist in its predestination. It's terrifying. And that'll be next week. So guests coming up. We have Roy Nevitt on the 16th. Oh, no, Roy Nevitt is next. The great Roy Nevitt drama teacher. And we have um, Lee Elliott, major professor on the 30th. Dennis Sherwood and other guests, and please feel free in the future to phone in and challenge what I say. Uh, hopefully I've been reasonably subjective, uh, not subjective, reasonably subjective, reasonably objective, and, uh, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. And I wish you all the best for the rest of the day and the rest of the week 
and I'll see you in two weeks' time on The Big Think. Oh, I love that. The Big Think with John Gibbs. Good luck. Have a great week. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.